Hello and welcome to Bank and Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The banking industry, while steeped in tradition, is far from predictable. More than ever, marketplace changes are impacting what financial institutions deliver and how those solutions are delivered. Unfortunately, not all legacy bankers have been able to keep pace with the change in the marketplace, either by choice or because their organizations have failed to let them keep up. Without a challenger mindset and a willingness to accept change, take risks, and disrupt the status quo, bankers like us will be left behind. I am so excited to have Leda Glippus, Chief Client Officer at 10X Banking, back on the Bank and Transform podcast. She discusses her amazing new book entitled Bankers Like Us, which chronicles her journey, observations, and recommendations for an industry being disrupted. Welcome back to the show, Lita. You know, it hasn't been too long since we had you on the show. During your last visit, you discussed how to make banking better in 2022. Suffice it to say that the show continues to be one of our most popular episodes with listeners due to the concrete insights and recommendations you provided. That said, you know, a lot has changed since we had that show. In fact, probably the most important, at least in your life, is that you wrote the book, Bankers Like Us, which is really a compilation of your thoughts and insights through an entire career that, you know, you, you almost feel at the end that it's not really the end that you're going to have pages continually added. But um, before we start, I'd like to initiate our conversation with a modified question that you ask at the beginning of your book. Who are you and why do thousands of people like me read and listen to your observations every week? Oh, what an amazing way to kick off. First of all, let me say thank you for having me. I've done a lot of these things, but I... I love our conversations the most because I forget I'm being recorded. It feels like I'm chatting to my friend. <laughs> and I think part of that warmth and, and joy came through to our last episode. And, and I hope it does in this one. Um, it's true. My book is out. And I do kick off with that question. And and frankly, I, I kick off with that question because I ask myself that a lot uh, as I go about doing my job. Um, when I go to conferences, when I go to meetings, our industry has a lot of people pontificating a lot of the time. And I hear a little voice in my head sometimes going, who are you? And what do you know about this thing? And yeah. sometimes the answer exists and it's a very good one. And sometimes the answer is, well, nobody's stopping me. So away I go. Um, so, so you're right that the book is, is a compilation of almost 20 years of of being in this business. And I think I think it's fair to say um, I'm a banker. I never thought I would be. I'm not a banker technically anymore. I'm in recovery, as, <laughs> as a friend of mine says. Um, but I I learned my craft inside a bank. I, I serve banks. At 10X, we, we serve banks. Um, and I still think and feel like one. Um, and I've been very lucky because I'm an accidental banker, as you, you see in, in the book, if you pick it up, I didn't plan for this. This was not my dream. I fell into it entirely randomly and after considerable resistance. But it turned out I love it. And it turned out I'm good at it. But that doesn't mean I am good at or love the thing as it is. And that's why I say I'm lucky because I came into banking with enough time before the fintech wave started 
to learn banking enough to make the most of the fintech wave. And I was lucky because I was there when it started. And we caught this wave in a way that you can't do now. And I think that is a moment in time thing. Because when when fintech became a thing, you were there, I was there, we could all fit in a room. It was the same people who needed to talk about ways of working, monetization models, front end, back end. It was the same people who talk about APIs and and DLT. It was the same people that needed to understand everything and make space for it. And now, 15 years is not a long time, but the things you need to know and understand that the depth at which they're being developed means that it is not possible to have that full generic overview anymore. And that's great in the one, on the one hand, because it means we've actually done some things and built some things. But it also means that you and I and those of us who are in the room where it started kind of thing have a unique vantage point. So to the question of who am I? I'm someone who's been doing this long enough to have some scars, to have seen it change and not change enough. Um, and someone who's ultimately willing to um, call it out. You know, that's an excellent starting point for this, because really, I think what you do as well as anybody in the industry is you not only are a, a very, very, very good banker, but a lot of that comes because you're also an amazing observer of what gets in the way and what doesn't get in the way. You know, I, I look back over my 40 plus years of banking, and I'm very fortunate in that I think I was brought up in, a, in an inquisitive way to continually learn. My mother was a teacher. My father was in sales, but he continually did education to improve himself. And I think sometimes, we talked about this before the podcast, the desire to continually learn about what you're involved in and learn more about it, not just to become better at it, but to understand what gets in the way is really what makes you different. And that's what makes the book so excellent in that you you take very composable stories and talk about what you see in the marketplace and how it can impact us and how we can improve upon it. The entire, the book's a self-help book. (laughs) And I I made a very conscious choice. Uh, I mean, the book is all about all the things that suck, really. (laughs) But But everyone ends in a positive way, though. Yes, it's all, I I actually made it a challenge for myself to find something we can do about each of those things, because otherwise, what what's the use? What's the point of pointing out things that are broken if you don't at least offer a way out? And, and I was also very conscious to make the recommendations, you're right, it is a self-help book, make the recommendations um, immediately actionable. And I've, I've, I've stayed away from saying things like, you should be more present because yes, you should be more present, but what does that mean? So I become much more granular. And I've also packaged the things you can do in in ways that can fit your appetite for disruption because not everyone is a revolutionary and that's okay. You can still have an impact. I, I do appreciate what you're saying about being a good banker and being a good observer. I think there's um an advantage that few few people have as a combination, most of our most vocal participants in our industry are former practitioners 
who now guide and write and 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 look into the future um, and have a platform. But some of the 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 pain is a little more distant, and the people who are in the weeds doing the doing very rarely have the platform and and talk. And I've um I found this niche for myself. I'm not a futurist. I'm not an organizational analyst. You're very pragmatic. I, mean, I you am. Really are. I am. Yeah. And I think part of it is because I do it every day. I think if I were to transition into a sort of a more strategic type of function, I would not stop talking and thinking about it, but the the horizon of it, like the things that really get you going would be different. So I think there is a unique um, niche I sit in, in that I do this every day. Like I am, I've got, I've got a day job as I keep telling yeah. conference organizers who invite me to talk about things I don't know very much about because they like my style. It's like, I have a day job. I am an expert in this because I do it every day. And I think the book is, you called it a, almost like a journal earlier. And, and you're right. It is exactly that. It's the lived experience of the last 20 years. Well, it's interesting also because I'm not in the banking industry, but I have I'm lucky in that I get to talk to people that are in it every day so I can figure out what the, the challenges are. And I think one of the aspects that, and, and I'm not going to put myself anywhere near the level that you have, because I, I love your writing, the style you have, but sometimes it's admitting that you're not the smartest person in the room. And when you admit you're not the smartest person in the room, you go around and try to ask questions of those people who may be. And you know, it takes it takes confidence, and sometimes that comes with maturity or age. I'm I'm gonna put age and maturity in different categories, I think, but um, it comes at a, at a point where you say, you know what, I I don't need to be the smartest person in the room, but man, I want to associate, I want to rub shoulders with those who do, and that helps you get better perspective beyond your own circle of friends, your tribe. So you're so right. What impact? do you hope your book has on the industry? Now, there's no doubt that people who know you, people that are already part of your tribe, people that think like you and like the way you think are going to pick up the book and go, yes, 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 it's all good. But there's the other aspect. Those who probably, and gosh, it, I hate to need the book the most. You know, I'm going to keep on the, the self-help thought. It is what? a self-help book, you're right. How do you hope the, the book impacts the industry as a whole and leaders? I, I appreciate that question. And, and and first of all, you know me. And secondly, reading the book, you know that that's top of mind. I think it's it's that thing that if you're always the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, right? And 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 so are you And nobody wants to talk to you. Exactly. Are you surrounding yourself with people who ask the right questions? So part of what the, the book tries to do, the first and foremost thing is you're not alone. These things that you observe, that at times you're the only person in the room you're in that seemingly observes them, you're not alone. You're not crazy. Um, the second is that calling these things out has power. And as as you know, there is a section in the book um, about the, the, the superpower, my superpower, Captain Obvious. And in fact, I don't know if you know Andrew Vorster, he made me a t-shirt, Captain Obvious, which I wear with great pride because part of my superpower is putting words around thing, elephants in rooms and things that often people are not articulating. And there's power in the telling. Sometimes we all know, but by saying the words, 
you highlight what it is we're all consenting to or what it is we're all accepting or what it is we're all sort of sliding towards. So I do think that the book in a, in saying, well, look, you're not alone. And, and these things that you consider part of the furniture are not inevitable. So let me say it because once I've said it, we're forced to reflect. Um, and once we reflect, I think there are these two major drivers in the book. One is there are things you as an individual, whoever you are, can start doing right now that don't jeopardize your job, that don't lead a rebellion, but will make a material change to you, your colleagues, the inclusion of your workspace, the ability to think more freely. And some of the examples are tiny, but actually they have a real impact. The second piece, excuse me, of the book is that there are some really big foundational pieces of society, fairness, how money operates, who gets access to credit and, and, and why, that seem too big for an individual to take on. But we as an industry are in a unique moment in time where we have the technology and the language to make different choices. Now, those are not easy, and they're not the sort of choices you quietly make from your desk, like the first category. But it is very much a case of if not now, when? If not us, who? And, and the book balances that sort of everyday and mundane, don't go to a meeting without an agenda. Don't let someone be rude to a colleague. Don't let something slide if you know incorrect information is being passed. Or don't silence someone asking a question. Answer it. It's a healthy instinct. These are small things, but they make a huge difference. Well, and they, they're to a degree, not every bank, but it's built into the legacy of banking, you know, yes. it, it in its own way. And, and, and in reading the book and in talking to through the years, the overriding theme in banking seems to be the negative gravitational pull of habits, status quo, aversion to rebels and risk. Do you think it's changed over time? Has it gotten better or has it stayed basically the same, but those with a voice are, are more apt to speak? I mean, everybody has a voice, but you know where I'm going. No, I know what you mean. Uh, has it gotten better? I think in pockets, it absolutely has gotten better. And I think um, we have language to challenge some of this that we didn't have before. Yeah. So actually, in that sense, it has definitely, definitely gotten better. Um, I think certain behaviors that people could get away with for a very, very long time um, are no longer there. Mm -hmm. Is it getting better fast enough? Absolutely not. No. Is no. it getting... Is incremental getting better enough, right? And 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 my view is no, it's not. Um, it it would be wrong to say it hasn't gotten better. And in fact, I, I would say that if I look back in my own time in the industry, we've come a really long way. We yeah. have. We've come a really long way. We've done a lot, and we've learned a lot, and 
that's not the same as having done enough, though. So oh, yes, it's gone by down. no means so enough. I mean, because we can bring up, you know, you're you're going to be you're going to continue to write your articles. So it's not like it's 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 not a done. It's never going to be a done process. I think it's interesting though because, you know, in reading your book, it, it could have been called people like us or people yeah. being people. Sorry, people being people, um, because it it really. It's not just banking, but I'm wondering, is the aversion to change, is the aversion to disruption more specific to banking or is it a human trait overall? Stated differently, does the industry seek out people that are less likely to be rebels or do the more conservative workers just avoid banking? I mean, the more conservative actually seek out banking. In other words, do we pull them in or, or are they drawn in? It's a very good question. Um, I think it's both. I, I think it's a bit of both. I think we definitely have a case of self-perpetuating demographics now because like always attracts like. Um, so people know what we're like, and the, the types of people that want a career in banking are attracted to the status, the predictability, the bureaucracy, the, uh, but also a certain type of person will hire people like them. Um, I think that is also true of a lot of big organizations and sort of big established industries. Um, it's an interesting one because actually my publisher, when I first got the manuscript together, he he said exactly the same. He said, this book isn't just for bankers. So why don't we form it in a way that... Um, we essentially make it available, and not I, I don't mean physically available, but like intellectually yeah. available yep. to non-bankers. And he and I played around with it. And, and actually the book is ri- written in a way that a non-banker would totally understand it. But my objection to him, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think I'm right, is that the industry has changed a lot, as we just said, but it has still made the minimum amount of effort that they thought they could get away with. The fact The reason it's changed a lot is because there was a lot of pressure from competition within, from the economy digitizing, from regulators getting on with the program. But in terms of willingness to change, that has not come. And that actually should have been my answer to your previous question. So the reason I double down on banking is that I find that because I'm a banker of 20 years standing, I can call bullshit. Am I allowed to swear? Oh, gosh, yes. I can go bullshit. I'm going to follow you up with swearing to my own and the three options I gave us. Maybe not the way I was going to go about it. But <laughs> when, when we use, so if I were to say this applies to all industries, somebody could come in with an example for petrochemicals or manufacturing that I could instinctively say that's not the same thing, but because I don't have the detail, you could up, they could obfuscate and get away with it. The reason we double down on banking is because I can smash the excuses people hide behind by having the facts, having the knowledge, having the ability to say the thing you're describing isn't actually set in stone. Um, but to your point, is it just us? Absolutely not. It could be everyone. The, the reason I focus on banking is exactly because I know the examples that Oh, exactly. Highlight the matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that someone could take the book and swap out the examples from banking, from manufacturing. And make a great book. Oh, yes. Exactly. Well, it's interesting, too, because, and you referenced it here, banking tends to do things because they have to as opposed to want to. They may say they want to, 
But the reality is, you know, you look at tech firms, they do things because they want to. They want to make this change. They want to do this improvement. They want to do this innovation. Banking tends to, again, in a very, there, there are certainly, you know, differences in, in all banks. But as an industry, we tend to move based on requirements as opposed to yeah. desires. And, you know, part of that, I believe, is profitability. You know, oh, when was the 100%. last... I mean, except for a very few, when was the last bank that didn't make an annual profit? Well, when there's an when when you're doing okay, there's no pain. And you can look at you know, personal level. You know, why is it so hard to put the exercise regimen in place or the eating regimen in place? Because until there's a pain, until you're you're given a, a ultimatum that something bad's gonna happen, it's the pull is not great enough. You know, it's interesting too. And you talk about the power of tribes throughout your book. I mean, it's, it's in every single section of the book. How important is it to find a tribe? And just similarly, what can big dreams even be achieved without a tribe around you? I don't think so. Let me start with that. I don't think... What's that quote? Only God and beast go it alone and, and mostly not the beasts. I don't I don't think you can do much on your own right. uh, for many reasons. I think we're all smarter when we think together. We we crystallize our thoughts better when we try to explain them, when we answer questions. I also think um, what we're trying to do is hard and the industry is making it harder and and having a group of people around you who encourage you to go on is important. But I also think when you have the tribe around you, you you do things for each other in a very meaningful way. And 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 the energy and the creativity cannot be done without the tribe, but also the optimism. Uh, we we've described everything that is difficult about the industry. And you're right, you know, no bank has changed unless it had to. And why did it have to? Pressure on the margins, pressure from competition in the market, either a new entrant or someone doing something clever and, and having your investors or the street come down hard. Regulators learning faster than banks. And also the fact that you're in an organization that rewards knowledge, not learning. And you said something like that well, earlier yeah. when we were not recording. Yeah. Um, but who's a senior banker? Someone who lays down the law and knows things and is an expert. So the vulnerability of learning and trying things goes against the grain of the of the industry. It can be extremely lonely and isolating. So if you don't have a tribe, I don't know that you even get started on this work. You know, that's, that's excellent. And it was interesting, too, because when I read the book and, and kept on hearing more and more about tribes, I realized that in certain ways, when I became a, a, um, a leader or a manager, so to speak, I found people that were somewhat like me and from the standpoint of accepting risk, being confident, being willing to do things that were not going to be at their level, um, well beyond their level. And not from a level of, of ability to do something, but, you know, in the level of the banking world. And I found that in each one of those, those people were part of my tribe that when I had that terrible day, which happened often, they were there to go, no, but you did this before. Try this this way. Or, and it doesn't yeah. even have to be within your own organization. Heck, we've had conversations before where we're, just, we're rattling the cages yeah. going, 
what do we do? You know, it's, it's sometimes good when you're not totally well to have others like you that you can talk to. So it, it um, you know, it, it's interesting. Talk about people not well. Um, we talk quite a bit about the frustrations we have with the banking industry. And we, we sometimes coin the term bankers being bankers. And, and that is never said yeah. in a complimentary way. It's always said nope. in a, nope, bankers being bankers. Now, all bankers are not created equal. and But you do dedicate 50 pages of your book to the discussion around bankers behaving badly, which I thought was really nervy that you didn't dedicate the whole book to that chapter. But um, you're not talking about illegal activity here. You're talking about just things that are just abnormal either as people or as bankers to be doing things. Can you give a couple examples from your book on bankers behaving badly? Yeah, of course. So you're right. Uh, my chapter on bankers behaving badly is not about illegal activity. It's not about immoral activity, although actually on some levels it's about values and principles. Yes. It's about two sets of behaviors. One is learned behavior, attitude behavior, that imperious, dismissive, curt with people, um, you know, sort of uh, that that uh, senior boss that comes down like a, a, a ton of bricks, is really short with, with folks, gives one word answers to complicated questions, never has time for anyone. Um, and we've all come across that person. And then the flip side of it is um, with, with possibly um, more sympathy, saying that some of those behaviors are learned behaviors. And I do genuinely think that some people go, I had that happen to me when I was a junior. Now is my time. And it's it's a learned behavior and an attitude thing that is a choice. But I also um, lay out in the book that a lot of it is a side effect of how we manage time, how we we have, I call it the cult of busy. People take great pleasure in telling you they're in back-to-back -back meetings. They start at seven in the morning. They don't have time for lunch. Um, and And... It's very hard to resist. I fall into these traps very regularly of having 14 hours of half-hour meetings back-to-back. -back you skip lunch and, and you haven't had any time to think. And part of the reason you do it is because everyone does it in the industry. So you need to do what you need to do. But the reality is you don't have time to think. You don't have time to digest complicated things. And you become cranky because that sustained stress is bad for your health. It's bad for your ability to concentrate. It's bad for your, uh, bad for your cognitive faculties. It makes you moody. It makes you less forgiving of a small thing. Um, I mean, an example, I don't think I even have this in the book, is that one of the most common fears you have as a junior, I'm pretty sure I don't have this in the book, is that you you accidentally send an email to senior people without an attachment. And we've all done it, and we've all had a telling off, right? And the first time you do it, you don't think it's a big deal. And you follow up a few minutes later going, really sorry, with the attachment now. Now, maybe it doesn't happen as much, but 20 years ago, you would get a telling off like there's no tomorrow. And it would make you so scared. Um, now, why did you get a telling off? Because the people that you were sending the email to were cranky for reasons that had nothing to do with you. Because at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. 
you're human. But but it's such a it's such a small thing. And, and I remember the first time I did it, I got told off so badly. And it never occurred to me at the time, because I was young, that the reason I'm getting told off is because my boss has zero patience because the way that the company manages their time is dehumanizing and and adds this sort of very, very heavy burden of stress. What it did to me is created this anxiety that was residual and cumulative, and it stayed with me for years, of like this sort of low-level anxiety whenever you sent an email to important people. Yeah. And I go out of my way now that I am an important person. If I get an email from a junior without an attachment and then a profuse apology, I make a point of going back saying, it's not a big deal. Doesn't oh, yeah. Matter. Now, mind you, I, I, I had more than a few where I replied to all or replied and had somebody else on the email that I didn't want on the email. Those are sometimes more damaging. But again, if it doesn't carry on beyond that day or beyond that minute, in many cases, you know, uh, what's the purpose of fighting over? And we, we, we get nitpicky, but you're right. Sometimes it's because somebody was nitpicky for that person. You know, it's interesting because overall, before we take a break, it, it's interesting because the entire book, I got to keep on emphasizing to those who are not familiar with Lita, that, that, it, it's a just a series of stories told in a, an extraordinarily interesting way, in the way only Lita can can do. And I, Chat GPT is going to take forever to try and figure out how to replicate her writing <laughs> style. But the reality is, it's stories about how we can get better at what we do as bankers and what we can do better as people. Um, there was more than a few places I did not put in the context of of being a banker, but couldn't put in the context of being a father and of a husband and as of a friend, because we make the same mistakes in our regular life. So, you know, with that in mind, let's, let's take a short break here and hear from our sponsors. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. So welcome back. I'm joined today by Lita Glippis, the Chief Client Officer at 10X Banking. You know, we've been discussing her new book, Bankers Like Us, and the insights and lessons that can be learned from a career in banking and actually a, a career in life. So as you know, the banking ecosystem today, what stands out as the most important trend that is changing bankers as we know them? If you ask me that question five years ago even, I would have told you that the technologies now at our disposal are forcing us to revisit big questions because we were doing the best we could, or so we thought, with the tools we had. And now we have tools that remove so many of the constraints of how we do things, both as humans and as bankers. One of the examples I use um, in my book is how we, we were accepting the constraints of lending to a particular type of person because there was no way of doing it without losing a lot of money, where now there is, right? Yeah. The unit economics can be so much lower that you can lend to a whole host of people that were 
excluded and still make money. So if you ask me, even five years ago, I would tell you that the technology, the tooling is really giving us the opportunity. We don't always take it that, to, to, to rethink the big questions as bankers and as humans. Although I still believe that is the case, I would say that now what I'm seeing the biggest change is, is there is a generational change that is extremely powerful. There is a generation that I feel is coming in after me that are digital natives that are, I mean, we love to mock them for being touchy-feely, but they believe in values in a way that when you and I talked about values in our offices, we were brave and a little embarrassed, right? Yeah, we thought it was soft, soft stuff. Yep. That's right. They're not. They come in and they want to talk about impact, not to the side of the work, but they want to lead with it. I've had people ask me about 10X's carbon footprint and um, diversity makeup in interviews. I wouldn't have dared. I wanted to know, but I wouldn't have dared when I was their age. So I do think that this generation that has grown up with the technology that allows you to revisit big questions is bringing a values and impact-based mentality to the workplace in a really major way, not as an initiative, but just as a way of being. So I do genuinely think that the biggest impact right now is generational because those kids are not kids anymore. They're sitting in positions of decision-making influence and power. You know, it's interesting because on that same thing, and and you, you put it better, it's the whole thought of technology, is that more and more components of what a banker used to do, the accounting division, the legal division, the compliance division, the back office operations are now more and more being taken over by technology. Just look at ChatGPT. And I don't think there, certainly I looked at it and said, oh, geez, can, could this replace me? And there's got to be a, a wide array of bankers that think, in the back of their minds, and we'll say it in a meeting, geez, could this replace me? The thought of replacement for the rote things that we do, the things that we do just in doing them as opposed to things that we bring our personality to, our feelings to, our emotions to, you know, that won't be replicated by technology. But we may be finally forced as people to double down on the soft skills that Tom Peters wrote about 25 years ago and that now are becoming more important because technology is actually pushing away many of the jobs that we came to banking for. I mean, think about it. The, the people went to school for accounting and finance were either going to one of the big accounting firms or to the banking industry. That was it. Well, now you're looking for, you know, and, and oh, by the way, today's technology people, the younger generation are being self-taught on YouTube for the next wave of what's coming along and spending more time on doesn't make a difference. So interesting question I have is, yeah. is what can bankers do to improve the industry, but also what can the industry do to improve their bankers? That's a very good question. Um, I think there is a there is a, a sort of uncomfortable truth we need to admit, which is not everyone wins here, right? The reality of what you described 
And I, I must admit that the first time I played with ChatGPT, I was terrified because it was so good. We made it do an onboarding API with a friend and it was pretty good. It was vanilla, but it was pretty good. And I think you're right that a lot of the work bankers do is mechanical. Like non-bankers think about bankers and they think about traders, but actually the vast majority of bankers are school leavers, not university graduates who do pretty mechanical manual work. They don't get paid particularly well and they don't do work that is impossible to automate. Account opening, account maintenance, uh, bond coupons. Those are things that can and probably will be automated. And the reality is that the banking industry will be smaller as a result. And and we need to face into that. Uh, that not everyone is a winner out of this. And I, I and there are a lot of people who are employed inside banks that are not the greedy fat cats. Right. And their jobs are most at risk. So to your question, what can bankers do to improve banking is to accept that technology can do a lot of those things, but it can also do a lot of things that are not like for like and ask the big questions. Because if as bankers, we are here to enable access to funding so that people can live and transact and get healthcare and travel the world to do basic things and big things. Our job is to be that intermediary. The way we used to do things was constrained by the tools we had. And as I was saying earlier, now we're not. So use the technology to automate and streamline the simpler stuff and then use your energy and your knowledge and your humanity to imagine how you can do better and different? How can you provide the ultimate fundamental purpose of why you're here, which is to facilitate life, commerce, and government to transact, to do whatever it is they're doing? That's all. How can we do that better with the tooling we have? And that exercise in imagination can never be automated. Sure, it'll probably need smaller teams and slightly different teams, but that can't be automated. The second part of the question is, is, is equally interesting. What can banking do for bankers? I think there are three things and they need to be done simultaneously. One is we need to start valuing learning more than knowledge. We were talking about it and you were saying exactly that before we started uh, recording. We reward knowledge now and knowledge is valuable, but teachability is more important. So the minute we start um, looking for teachability, rewarding for teachability, we get different behaviors, we build different habits, we, dif we get different people. That's the first thing. And that can happen immediately. The second thing is that we need to stop forgiving bad behavior. We need to raise the bar. That will help sort through. If we need to have smaller teams, let's make them better, better teams, both in terms of delivery and in terms of ethics. The third thing we can do is, is look after the people who are the, at the sort of pointy end of this. As I was saying earlier, the vast majority of bankers are not particularly well paid. They're not greedy Gordon Gecko types. They're people who could be working in a bookstore instead. They just have ended up in a bank, in a back, back office operations room or in a branch. Those people are not benefiting from banking being how it is and they're not in control of the change. And they can very easily be forgotten in this change. We need to create programs that help them retrain. The teams will get smaller for sure. So what are you doing in anticipation of that? How are you helping your people 
develop useful skills or be absorbed somewhere else in the community. We are not a struggling startup that doesn't have a choice. We have visibility of a 20-year horizon where the, the hiring needs of a bank will shift. Are we doing the decent thing for the people that will be most impacted on a personal level? Yeah. I don't think we are right now, but we could and we should. So your book provides an enormous opportunity to do some soul searching, look in the mirror, determining do I fall on the positive or negative side of your stories. Um, and, and hopefully there's a good mix with everybody who reads it. When you look at your career, when you look at your past, what is the biggest legacy you would like to leave behind from your career? I was a very ambitious and sort of scrappy person when I started. I don't come from from much and, and everything I achieved was a little bit of a, ooh, will we get found out here? So for a very long time. <laughs> Boy, I, I used that. I used to saying going, I'm doing well until the sheriff catches up with me. You know, and, and again, nothing illegal, but I, yeah, I keep yeah. on, you know, you, the reality is we honestly, I, I've been with you at events. We pinch ourselves sometimes going, I don't know if everybody realizes I'm faking it here. You know, this is this is really cool. And this is so above where I put myself. But it's it's kind of fun that way. It is. And and I think it's fair to say we've we've thrown ourselves at it and so have earned our place here. But there've definitely been times when it's like, I'm gonna keep going until someone stops me. And I think in <laughs> there's definitely uh hunger in that and there's definitely ambition and if you ask sort of younger me what I want to be remembered for I would I would tell you I want to kind of make a dent in the world I want to mm -hmm. build things and I want to achieve things and although if I look back I've been part of teams that have built incredible things actually I can point to pieces of technology that I'm proud of I can point to client work that I'm proud of I I look at the things we do with 10x and I'm like I'm part of this. This is so cool. But actually, as I get older, I realize that it's the teams you do the building with that is the most important thing. And and if my legacy is the people that have love for me and trust me, not just my judgment, but my my willingness to be there for them. Like for me, the biggest, the biggest honor is when a team member or former team member knows I will have their back and I will give them honest feedback and I will always fight for them without needing to check. Um, that, that earned trust and affection of I'm a person of integrity and you have seen enough integrity from me to know that you can count on my trajectory being predictable and my values being true. That's the biggest, that's the absolute biggest thing. And for me, the biggest gift of the, the tribe I've built through my writing and my outreach, because with, with work, with your team, these guys know you, right? These guys and girls are in the trenches with you every day. So it's a personal connection. What the, the writing has given me is because I have, as you pointed out, a pretty conversational way of writing. I've met people that I had never seen before who came up to me and was like, I feel like I know you. Yeah. Yep. And, and you create that bond with people much further afield, but that's the legacy, right? Are you creating that bond of trust? 
not just I like you, but I have seen enough consistency in your beliefs and your behaviors that I trust that you will hold firm no matter what the circumstances, that you will continue believing this, that you'll continue advocating this, that you will not be blown off course by circumstance. That is the biggest legacy, both having being known for that and having that remembered, but also creating a community alongside other folks who feel the same way, where that is expected. And I do think that we're definitely building that now. That right there is the best culmination of what your book is. Um, you said it better than I ever intended that question to go. But the reality is your book from page one to page 280, you know it better than I do, how many pages is it? 280 something. Every single page is a lesson learned and a recommendation given. You can take it, you can leave it. But the reality is the entire book is a gift. And I, I mean that very genuinely that it continues to show that, geez, here's a path you may want to take that I've already seen or been a part of or done myself. And here's how you can avoid that going forward. That is a legacy that few can speak to. But in the reality of what's going on, if you want more bankers to be better people, your book gives a path in a very... Again, conversational, entertaining, short snippets. You 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 don't have to read it all at once. It it comes in its compartments very easily. It is not depressing, but there's a depressing <laughs> moment within each story. I bet, it I is bet. it is not motivational, but there's a motivational moment in every single story. And there's a lesson to be learned. And and so Leda, so much appreciate your friendship, your guidance, and your thoughtfulness in putting this all down on paper because it is so important. Um, for those listening who do not know, Lita also writes every Thursday on hashtag Lita Writes. And that's the only way you're going to get the next chapters of the book that haven't been written yet. Is she, she keeps going. And again, uh, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your insights, your passion, and... Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm very honored to be a part of your tribe. Thank you. Thank you for your friendship and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take some time to give a review on your favorite podcast platform. It helps continue to get great guests like today. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing on the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roe Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember Lita's very powerful words. We are all part of his service industry. If we are not of service, we are in the way. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions 
you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.